It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 779 for the 11th of February, 2020. This week, the pandemic may keep us isolated for a while yet, so if you have old negatives, prints, movies, videotapes, and even old audio tapes around the house, now would be a good time to start digitizing and sharing them. In short circuits, if you've ever wondered what Amazon knows about you, you can find out by just asking. Beware that you'll be buried under a huge pile of data that's seemingly designed not to be helpful. Changes to the user interface for Microsoft 365 and Office 2021 are minor, but there are some hidden gems. It's also easy to switch between the old interface and the new, so you won't be locked in if you object to the changes. And 20 years ago, speech recognition, which was last week's main topic, was also a topic in 2002. It was primitive by today's standards, but we were beginning to understand how a well-designed automated attendance system could handle routine issues. There's a good chance that you have some old film negatives around the house. Many will probably be 35mm film negatives, but there may be other sizes. What about old VHS 8mm or Super 8 film? Or VHS or 8mm video cassettes? Or audio on cassettes or reels? I sent around 3,100 35mm slides to be digitized several years ago, but I also had VHS and 8mm videotapes around the house, several quarter-inch audio tapes, and a lot of 35mm and 120 roll film negatives. I wanted to share these with the family because they were so old that most of us had forgotten about them. In some cases, they were events that my daughters, and even my wife, had never seen or heard. In December 2020, I started scanning old film negatives. From then until now, I've digitized more than 5,600 images that I post to a Google Drive account shared with the family. Each day I send an instant message with a link to a specific set of images. Usually it's just a single roll of film. One that I sent in January described the beginning of a 1992 vacation that took us to Detroit, Toronto, and Niagara Falls. What I told the family was, Greenfield Village is a fabulous place, and we spent a lot of time here. Today and the next five days we'll have photos from that part of our vacation. The photos have brought back a lot of enjoyable memories. Scanning services make the process easy, but somewhat less personal. The services typically return JPEG images, and that limits your options considerably. Some will provide the scanned images as TIFFs, but at double or triple the price. There's really no reason for a price increase for outputting scans as TIFFs, because that takes no more time than outputting them as JPEGs. Scanning 35mm slides is a slow and cumbersome process, even with a dedicated scanner such as the Plustec OpticFilm 8100. I bought that more than a decade ago. That's why I decided to send the 3100 slides to Scan Cafe for processing. At that time, at least 10 years ago, the work was done in India. Starting in 2019, the company says all orders are processed in Indianapolis. I had carefully organized the slides into groups, but the scans were returned in no discernible order. 
That was frustrating, but Scan Cafe worked with me to resolve the problem. Ten years on, I presume their current processes wouldn't allow that to happen. Whether you do the work yourself or send it to a service such as Scan Cafe, it's something that should be done sooner rather than later. Film, prints, videotapes, and audio tapes do not improve with age. In some cases, I have scanned photos, but this should be done only when negatives are not available. So if you have family pictures from the 1800s or early 1900s, prints are probably all you have. These can be scanned at home, but the process, again, is cumbersome. A digitizing service would be a good choice if you have a lot of prints. Top 10 Reviews lists some of the services they've examined. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Home movies, 16mm, 8mm, and Super 8 should all be sent to a scanning service because there simply aren't any reliable systems for consumers to use. Videotapes, VHS, Beta, 8mm, and Hi8 can be converted at home if you still have a device that will play the format and if you have a way to import a video data stream into a computer. The same is true for audio files. I have some old 7-inch and 10-inch reels that date back to the 1960s. With no reel-to-reel -reel recorder in the house, having the old tapes digitized by a service was the only option. There was a time when I was a disc jockey overnight on WTVN. Sand and sea, sea and sand, and all that stuff. Mr. Frank Sinatra, an album called That's Life. 11 after 3. The sound of the good life. WTVN. Columbus. Hello, I'm Charlton Heston. So you are. Radio Free Europe is the strongest link the communist-ruled people of Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, and Romania have with the free world. In most cases, video transfers are best handled by professionals. One point to bear in mind is that the old videos won't look very good on today's television computer screens. The videos will appear to be blurry compared with what you remember seeing on your 1997 television. That 1997 television used 1997 NTSC technology that was actually developed in 1954. Vertical resolution was just 525 lines. Compared to the most basic high-definition standard of 720 lines and the more common 1,080 lines. High-definition television wasn't widespread in the United States until 1998, even though a few stations had started broadcasting HD signals as early as 1996. Sets that could receive HD broadcasts became available in 1998, and HDTV is now the standard, with 4K beginning to be used and 8K waiting in the wings. So any of those old video recordings you have will look terrible compared to what we see on today's televisions. The easiest media to deal with are photo negatives. You will need some specialized hardware and software, and you'll need some time. If you have the time, the hardware and software are reasonably priced. Scanning 5,600 negatives would have cost more than $2,000, but the combined cost of the hardware and software was less than $500, so one quarter of the price and I still have a lot more images to scan. Silverfast scanner software is included with the Plustec 8200i, that's the new model that replaced the 8100 I have, but my recommendation is to drop the Silverfast disc into the trash and buy ViewScan Professional for $100. 
Silverfast connects one scanner to one computer, period. ViewScan can be installed on any number of Windows, Mac OS, or Linux computers that you own and can be used with any number of scanners. In my case, that's a Windows computer and a Mac with a multi-purpose printer that's built into a scanner, a dedicated flatbed scanner, and the Plustech film scanner. You may think the process is complicated, and there are a lot of steps, but it's really not particularly difficult. After working to streamline the process over the past year, each individual image takes about two minutes to go from film to scanned image saved on disk to an optimized output image that'll be shared with the family. So I'll describe my process. It might turn out to be a good starting point for you, but you'll probably make some changes along the way so that it fits the way you like to do things. The scanner has a negative holder that accepts a strip of up to six images. Most photo processors cut film into strips of four images. So here's my process. Remove the film strip holder from the plastic bag that it's stored in to eliminate dust. Put on a white glove on one hand. I glove the right hand. If you're left-handed, you'll probably want it on your left. It's possible to work without a glove, but that makes it all too easy to plant a fingerprint on a negative. Wearing gloves on both hands seems like overkill. I found using just a single glove works well because negative holders are too slick if there's a glove on each hand. Use a new glove for each scanning session. After centering the images in the holder, use a brush to remove any large debris that might be on the negatives, then an air bulb to remove any remaining debris. Do not, under any circumstances, use canned air of any sort. Then start view scan and place the negative strip in the scanner. If you have more than one scanner, make sure that view scan is set to use the film scanner. Set the media to color negative, scan resolution to 1800 dpi, and I'll explain that setting a little later. Specify an output directory, choose TIFF output, and set file naming to be today's date with a numeric suffix that will automatically increment. On the color tab, set the color balance to auto, specify the film manufacturer such as Kodak, the brand such as Vericolor, and the type such as 3 Pro. The information you need to do this is printed along the edge of the film. Click Preview for the first negative in the roll so you can confirm that the crop is correct. Then use the Scan button for each image on the roll. If you're scanning more than one roll at a time, insert a blank scan between rolls. The all-black images are tiny compared with the photo images, and this makes the process of identifying sets of photographs easy when it's time to rename them, and that's the next step. When you're finished scanning, open the target directory with the free bulk rename utility and type an identifying name. An example would be like 1992 vacation 01 in the name box, and then choose suffix numbering in the number box. Select the images from one roll and click rename. Now your images will all have useful names. Modify the name for each new roll, so instead of 1992 Vacation 1, you'd have 1992 Vacation 2, and so on. Placing a dash at the end of the name separates the name itself from the image numbers. Next, import the files into your photo application. I use Adobe's Lightroom Classic to move the files from the scan directory to the location I prefer for Lightroom's files. 
Once the files are in Lightroom, I modify the color, exposure, and cropping as needed for each image, and then export JPEG files to Google Drive for use by the family. That's my method. The system you develop will probably be different. Files can be renamed when they're imported into Lightroom Classic, for example, but I prefer handling that step before the images get to Lightroom. You may want to scan negatives at a higher or lower resolution. After experimenting, I picked 1800 dpi, but ViewScan can scan negatives at up to 7200 dpi, so maybe you're curious about why I selected the modest 1800 dpi setting. Well, it's a simple trade-off for faster operation. At 7200 dpi, scans can take several minutes per image just for the scan. The old family snapshot images will be used only for small prints, if they're ever printed, and most will be viewed only on screen. The resulting images are around 2500 pixels by 1650 pixels. This is more than sufficient for 5x7 prints and okay for 8x10 prints. If you want to be able to create 16x20 or larger prints, pick a higher resolution, but remember the film itself has limited resolution. Also, if your negatives are from one of those ill-advised photodisc cameras of the 1980s, 110 cassette films, 126, 120, or 220 roll film, you'll be better off turning the negatives over to a scanning service. But if you have 35mm negatives, now is a great time to start a do-it-yourself project. It's likely that we'll continue to have limited opportunities to mingle with family and friends for at least a while. So bring out the old photos, negatives, movies, and videos, and prepare them for sharing. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, if you want to find out what Amazon knows about you, just ask. Amazon will send you a bunch of files that contain everything the company knows about you. Chances are, though, you'll almost regret asking when they deliver the huge package. The cyber guy posted an explanation for how to make the request. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's easy to do, and Amazon says customers can access a lot of their data instantly, as well as update personal information from the Your Account page. I decided to push forward and filled out the request form. There's a link to the request form on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It takes only a minute or two, and Amazon notified me about two weeks later that I could download all of my information. It seemed a little too easy to this point. Then I followed the download link, and it almost seems that Amazon makes the process needlessly complex. I found 146 zip files. Each file had to be downloaded individually. It would be trivial for Amazon to use a process that would combine all of the zip files into a single comprehensive file. Downloading a single file would take less than a minute. 
Downloading 146 individual zip files took about 20 minutes. Then I had to extract all of the files contained in the zip files. Fortunately, 7-Zip can unpack all 146 zip files in a single go. Then I had 1,927 files in 137 directories. Some of the files are text files, many are CSV files, a few are PDFs, and far too many are JSON files. JSON files are human-readable in the way that XML files are human-readable, which is best described by the words, just barely. I deleted the 738 JSON files and went on to examine some of the other files. And here's what I found. Amazon sells information about you to advertisers who can find a way to present their advertising. Now, it is inaccurate to imply, as I actually just did, that Amazon sells specific details about you. They don't. You're placed in audiences whose members have similar characteristics, and advertisers buy the audiences. I was in audiences purchased by the American Automobile Association, Consumer Cellular, General Mills, General Motors, Joybird Furniture, Kimberly Clark, Pizza Hut, Starcom, Stars Entertainment, Zillow, and dozens of others. You'll get your full list if you request it from Amazon. If you have communicated with any third-party merchants through Amazon, copies of the messages are retained. Now, this is good in case you need to follow up with the merchant later, with Amazon or with anybody else. Amazon also retains any images you've included in messages to a seller. For reasons known only to Amazon, these are provided as files with no extension and no obvious way to determine what they are. I opened one of the files in a text editor, and that provided the information I needed to identify it as a JPEG image file. Amazon also knows which computer you've used to connect to Amazon. Communications with Amazon, either the automated assistant or a human support person, are saved. Prime subscribers who use their subscriptions to watch videos will see a list that includes information about each episode's name, the series it was part of, if any, whether you watched on a computer or a television, and which internet service provider you were connected to at the time. Many of the files appear to be from a relational database, but they don't include the links needed to make the appropriate connections between the files. To examine your usage of Kindle eBooks, for example, it is necessary to examine 44 files and try to figure out the connections between them. The full query results could be exported to a single CSV file that the customer could then open in a spreadsheet program. You'll see this with other Amazon services, but the Kindle files illustrate most clearly what seems to be an overt attempt to make the process as difficult as possible for customers. Whether you look at a lot of the files, just a few or none, it is clear that Amazon knows a lot about its customers. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise, even if you do choose to look at none of the files or ignore the process entirely. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Stellar sales clerks know their customers and what their customers like. Stellar sales clerks may even call their best customers with information about something they know the person would like to have. Amazon has simply automated the process. But even so, 
the stellar Amazon sales clerk seems to know far more about us than any human sales clerk ever could. Microsoft has been working on changes for Microsoft 365, the new name for Office 365, so the interface will more closely resemble that of Windows 11. But that's not all. When you open one of the applications, you may be prompted to try the new interface. Perhaps you've already seen that message. Besides looking at what's new, I'll explain how you can restore the old interface if you've tried the new one and don't like it, as well as how to enable the new interface if you initially declined the offer. Microsoft has been testing the changes since the summer of 2021 with some Microsoft 365 and Office 2021 users. And no, I don't know why Microsoft dropped the Office designation for the software as a service suite, but retained it for the version with a perpetual license. Most of the visual changes are subtle, but more significant changes are coming. Microsoft would really like to have users start storing documents online, perhaps because more online usage means subscribers will need to pay for more online storage. In promoting the changes, Microsoft says the new interface will help you focus more on your work. What's missing is that there is no explanation of how or why the changes will allow users to focus more on their work. In fact, Changes almost always have the exact opposite effect initially. Changes cause users to concentrate on the interface until they learn how to work with those changes. That grumbling aside, I like what I've seen so far. The interface will default to the settings that you've established for the computer, light or dark, but this can be changed on the account page. Options include black, white, dark, gray, system, and colorful. The Quick Access Toolbar, or QAT, can be hidden for those folks who dislike it. Any function on the Quick Access Toolbar will also be found on the menu or ribbon, so it's understandable for it to be seen as unnecessary and a waste of space. But the Quick Access Toolbar can be used to display commands that are several layers deep on a menu. For example, I prefer to work in Print View, but sometimes I need to switch to Outline View. Placing Print View and Outline View on the Quick Access Toolbar allows for instantaneous, single-click changes. Any command from any menu can be placed on the Quick Access Toolbar. The ribbon has a rounded look and the buttons have been modified in Word, Excel, PowerPoint, OneNote, and Outlook. In other words, the changes haven't been applied to all of the applications in the suite just yet. So if you tried the new interface and you want to go back, or you ignored the offer and you want to give it a try, open Word, Excel, PowerPoint, OneNote, or Outlook, and look for a megaphone in the upper right corner. Click that, then scroll down to the toggle switch. After turning the new features on or off, you do need to restart the application. Just the application, not your computer. If you've tried it and you want to go back, hold up for just a little bit. Before deciding to go back, give those changes a chance for just a few days you might find you'll like them. There are no features to turn on or off in 20 years ago. Just direct your browser to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you can read about speech recognition as it was in 2002. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. 
There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>